0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches the podcast from the Western Front Association with me Dr Tom Thorpe The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history society we are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and they have around 60 branches worldwide For more information visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com It is the 16th of October 2023 and this is episode 319. On today's podcast I talk to author and historian Dr Derek Clayton about his recent book Decisive Victory that looks at the Battle of the Samba on the 4th of November 1918. This book is published by Helion. Derek spoke to me from his home over the interweb. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Could you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Battle of the Samba and events surrounding
1: it? Yes, of course. Um, if we go back to 2004, I just uh, published my battalion history on the Ninth Battle of the Ninth Battalion of the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry from Pontefract to Piketty, uh, which was inspired, I suppose, by a photograph of my great-uncle that I was given in the late 80s. Um, a search for his records had failed. So I went to the public record office, as it was called in those days, and had a trawl through the uh, the war diary and things developed from there. Um, around the same time, I was attending evening and weekend lectures and seminars at the University of Birmingham, the Center for First World War Studies. And about that time, Professor John Bourne launched an MA course in First World War Studies starting that year, 2004. Um, because I published that battalion history, I was able to join the course. Um, my first degree was was no good in that respect, having been in uh, French and German. Um, during that course, I was lucky to have Professor Peter Simpkins as the supervisor for my dissertation. And then having received the MA in 2006, the question, of course, was what next? Um, I decided I wanted to do another book. And When I mentioned this to John Bourne, he said, Well, if you're going to write another book, why not make it a PhD? Um, As it happened, I'd become very interested in 1918, um, an area, shall we say, less visited by researchers and writers than the earlier years of the war. So I was looking to do something in that area, something specifically in the 100 days. Um, I looked at one or two things. I, I quite fancied doing the the breaking of the Hindenburg line, only for uh, John Bourne to tell me that somebody else was doing that already. So I had a chat with with Peter Simkins again, and he suggested the Battle of the Sombra, to which I replied, "I've never heard of it." And he said, "Exactly, that's why you need to write about it." So that's what I did. Um, I was awarded the PhD in 2016, and the book followed uh, two years later. Now, as I as I trawled the records, the uh, the sheer size of the battle became obvious and how late it was in the war. There was only one week to go to the armistice and questions began forming in my head, such as, well, the first one, obviously, why has no one already completed the proper study of it? Um, The battles of Amiens and Amel are always put forward as the zenith of the all-arms battle. Where does the Sombra fit into this uh, learning process, if you like? Being so late in the war was the battle, actually necessary? Uh, Was it unnecessary or irrelevant to the British victory? Did it have any strategic impact? And finally, did it actually go to plan? Those are the questions I tried to answer in the book.
0: Now, your, your book, Decisive Victory, sheds on the Battle of the Sambra, which has often been overlooked by historians. Why do you believe this battle is significant? And why have, you been, uh, why, why have you felt compelled to actually bring it to the fore? I think you've touched on this some of this already.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as alluded to earlier, as you say, I'm, I, I'll quote Neil Barr here. He wrote that the Battle of the Sambra was overlooked, perhaps because of the rush to reach the armistice, which seems to afflict most studies of the Great War. Um, I read that in, in an article that he wrote, and I thought, yes, why not? Why not go for that? It's not been done. Maybe it needs to be. Um, all you get if you if you look at the Battle of the Somme in popular, uh, so shall so we popular knowledge, shall we say, is Wilfred Owen, who was killed in action that day, and you sometimes hear a little bit about the Victoria Crosses that were won, but that's about it. It was the significance of of the battle that. Uh, drew me in so to do to to do justice to that i need to look at the situation at the end of october 1918. um the german army was exhausted and depleted after the costly failures of their spring offensives and had been hit by sequential high tempo attacks from july onwards and and were by this time just trying to hang on really douglas haig uh, was thinking that victory was possible in 1918 um, he did waver once or twice, uh, if you read his diaries carefully, but his basic thinking was we could we could win this war this year. Meanwhile, politicians, of course, were planning for 1919. And in fact, Churchill wrote warning GHQ not to squander resources now so as to be ready for 1919 and 1920. Um, if you look at the original message, uh, quite interestingly, Douglas Hager scribbled in pencil in the margin next to those two years What rubbish. Hank consulted uh, Bing, 3rd Army, and Rawlinson, 4th Army, on 1st of October, and he wrote that both consider that the enemy has suffered very much and it is merely a question of our continuing our pressure to ensure his breaking. So they're keen to, to fight this last battle. The Germans, meantime, they had begun construction of the Hermannstellung, their defensive positions, on the 30th of September. This incorporated the forest of Mormal, the fortified villages to the north and the west of it, and the actual line of the Sombro-Oise Canal to the south. By the time the 4th of November came along, Germany had lost all of her main allies, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, Bulgaria, all had dropped out of the conflict. Germany had been investigating the possibility of an armistice through contact with President Wilson of the USA. But German GHQ, so the OHL, they, the mood remained rather belligerent there. They were loath to accept an unconditional surrender. Ludendorff had gone by this time. He resigned on the twenty-sixth of October, and Wilhelm Groener was now commander-in-chief. And his his vision, he he saw a need to withdraw to a new defensive line, the, the Antwerp Mers line, and from there try to hang on through the winter, hoping to negotiate a favorable peace in the spring of nineteen nineteen. I think. By that time, the Germans had come to the conclusion they were going to lose the war, or at least they won't get anything more from it than maybe a score draw, if I can use that analogy, and were hoping simply to extend the, the fighting through into the spring of next year. Now, for this withdrawal to work, there was a a lot of material uh, between the Sombra and the Meuse, which had to be moved, moved out of the way. So the troops on the line of the Sombra had to hold out for as long as possible to make this uh, withdrawal to the new defensive line possible. And Hindenburg, Hindenburg hadn't given up either. Um, he wrote in his memoirs, by the end of October, the collapse was complete at all points. It was only on the Western Front that we still thought we could avert it. So a possible British victory on the 4th of November uh, had quite a decisive strategic effect. By the end of that day itself, Kroner had given the order for the retreat he was hoping to postpone. And the the German official history uh, writes simply at that point, on 4th of November, Germany's fate was irrevocably settled. OHL knew that the efforts to hold out had failed. Gruner announced to Parliament on the 5th of November that the army couldn't hold out even beyond Saturday, the 9th of November. And that same evening, German delegates set out for the front to negotiate the surrender. There were no more lines to defend. Um, the British official history calls the next phase, the next few days, the pursuit. Um, I suppose to use another football analogy, it was a Kenneth Wilson home moment. If they think it's all over. It is now. That's the that's the importance. Of the Battle of the Sombra,
0: so the Battle of the Somme just takes place just one week before the armistice, making it the last large scale battle fought by the British expeditionary Force on the Western Front. Could you provide us with a brief overview of the battle and its strategic importance? again, I think you've already touched
1: mm-hmm, of course, yes, um, it took place on a twenty mile front north to south, including both third and Fourth armies. There was a very small first Army involvement up to the north, but uh, not very significant, to be honest. Uh, There were six corps made up of 13 divisions. So that's actually similar numbers to the 1st of July, 1916 on the Somme. There were four divisions to the north of the forest, and they were facing um, countryside full of fortified villages, orchards, hedgerows, and so on. Uh, We had the New Zealanders facing the town of Le Caisnois, five divisions opposite the forest of Mormal itself. And in the south, three more actually up against, right up against the canal. Now, except in the south, opposite the canal, the tactic was one of three objective lines. Units leapfrogging sequentially onto the next one. One brigade allocated to each one. That was the general pattern. There were slight variations. They were supported by over a thousand guns. There was limited RAF involvement, however. Um, They hadn't been able to fly at all on the 2nd and 3rd of November because of the weather. And by the time it got light on the 4th, most of the infantry's work had been done. Uh, The planes were mainly involved in bombing and strafing, retreating German columns. Uh, If you look at tanks, uh, only 40 by this time were available. And transportation limitations meant that none could be used further north than the forest. And even then, they were limited there. They were ordered not to enter the forest, one apparently did against orders and bellied itself almost immediately on a tree stump and became totally useless. They did have some armoured cars uh, which were able to move up and down the, the rides and the paths in the forest. Um, obviously, they couldn't cross the canal except by existing bridges. Um, the existing bridges, of course, were mined by the Germans, so it wasn't certain we be going to hold those. Their main task, therefore, was helping to clear the villages to the west of the forest and the two towns that were actually on the west bank of the canal that were still in Germans' hands, that's L'Andrecy and Catillon. So it all came down in the end to infantry, artillery, and engineers. So if you like, we could call it combined arms, but it's not an all-arms battle. The average battalion strength of the BEF at that time was about 700 men, compared to 500 for the Germans. Now, there was no long prior artillery barrage. The barrage commenced at zero, and if we move quickly north to south, I'll quickly tell you what happened. We had 7th Corps right in the north, and as I said, they're fighting against fortified villages and hedgerows and so on. Their platoon tactics of fire and movement, outflanking points of resistance, all worked very, very well until the last stage, Um, but they were able to engineer a pause into the battle, organise a new artillery barrage in order to tackle the last two villages on the ridge where resistance had initially been particularly stubborn. But with the rearrangement, they managed to take those and reach their objectives. Moving down was a uh, sixth corps, similar story farms, woods, three streams to cross, three villages captured and cleared. Fourth corps involved the New Zealanders. As I said earlier, they were uh, facing the town of Le Quais-Noir. Now, this is a, a Vauban designed defense system. If you look at it, from an aerial photographic sort of the, the familiar star-shaped ramparts that you get all the way around the town. And these are about 60 feet high. They couldn't bombard the town because there were still um quite a few French civilians in there. So they the plan was that the New Zealand troops would encircle it, working around the north and the south, before joining up at a point well to the east, then reorganizing and continuing the advance into the Mormel Forest. Now, this the surrounding of the town went more or less as planned but the town garrison still refused to surrender we had the air force dropping messages into the town saying you're surrounded we're well to the east it's time you gave up the germans were having nothing of it um so in the end it was quite an audacious move by members of the fourth new zealand rifle brigade uh in particular two lieutenants lieutenant avril and lieutenant kerr they placed a ladder against the ramparts at around four o'clock in the afternoon climbed up and their appearance on the top of the ramparts came as quite a surprise to the the Germans in the vicinity. A few shots from their revolvers sent them sent them running away. The whole battalion scaled this one ladder and mopped up the town and they took, in the end, about 700 prisoners, uh, all for 4th Corps for a cost of 10 officers and, and 79 other ranks. Just to the south, 37th Division uh, Division captured two villages to the west of the forest, pushed on into the forest Not quite reaching their objectives in this particular case. But as in many other places, by the morning, the Germans had gone, so they were able to advance onto their objectives unchallenged. Uh, They had five tanks to help them at this point. Not the tank's best day here. Three of them broke down and one was put out of action by enemy fire. If we move down to Fifth Corps, we get two very different stories. We have 17th and 38th Divisions. Now, 17th Division, the northerly, of the two was not actually particularly highly regarded by German intelligence services. They were looked upon as not being very innovative or forward-looking. And indeed, they struggled to get through the wood. They were tied down by machine gun fire. Um, they were reluctant to work with exposed flanks. I suppose the the one word you could use to describe that would be tentative. And they ended the day well short of their objectives. 38th Division, in contrast, just to the south, um, They basically obeyed the orders that they'd been given to move swiftly along the the tracks and the rides through the forest, bypassing points of resistance and leaving them to the mopping up units coming in behind. Now, they reached their objectives very easily and very quickly with relatively few casualties. If I I just compare the two, 17th Division um, suffered 172 fatalities, 38th Division, 97. So the difference in tactics really made a difference at that point. We now come to 13th Corps. This is 18th and 50th Division with 20 tanks and, as I mentioned earlier, some armored cars. They pushed on through the forest, reached their objective near the canal uh, on a spur overlooking and outflanking the town of Laundressy, which left 25th Division, along with four tanks, to actually have a go at the town of Laundressy itself. They had a 2,000-yard advance first, then a canal crossing, and then the capture of Londres They had hoped to capture the main bridge across the canal intact, but unfortunately the Germans blew it up as they approached. So what they managed to do was to cross the canal to the east and west of the town using rafts, uh, which had been built by the engineers using petrol cans as floats. These were ferried across and then tied together to make a pontoon bridge, and they were able then to flank the town on both sides, Light bridges were then thrown across the lock near the old main bridge. And very quickly after that, the German resistance uh, crumbled, shall we say, and the town was cleared. If we move further down south now, we come up, as I said, right up against the canal. That's where the jumping off positions were. Now, this canal was about 55 feet wide, seven foot deep. Um, They're not going to try and swim across or anything like that. They want to keep the infantry dry. So they identified five crossing places, one of which was the stretch of the canal between Londresy and the village of Ors. There was a bridge at the village of Ors, which they hoped to capture. Also a bridge at the other village, Catillon which was on the west side of the canal and still in German hands. There's a stretch of canal to the south of catillon and then at the very southern tip of the whole uh, advance, there was lock number one, where they hoped to get across the, those, those narrows. Now, the first of those... The 32nd Division initial attempt to cross failed with heavy casualties. Um, Four Victoria Crosses were won in the attempt, and this is the point at which Wilfred Owen was killed. They were able to cross later, um, but they had to go out to a flank and they used a single pontoon bridge to the south of Ors that the Germans somehow had failed to detect. The whole uh, brigade went across that one pontoon bridge, basically turned left and started to outflank the Germans. The attempt to cross at the bridge at Orles as well also failed. That was that was too well defended by the by the Germans at Catillon village. That was attacked not from the uh, west as the Germans were expecting, but from the south, which allowed them basically to outflank most of the defensive German positions. They had the help of two tanks. They managed to seize the bridge and formed a small bridgehead. Their orders were not to go any further than that bridgehead on that day. On the stretch of the canal to the south, complete surprise was achieved in total contrast to what happened to 32nd Division. It was a sparsely defended sector, as it turned out, and the men of 1st Brigade were actually across in less than 15 minutes. The crossing at lock number one nearly faltered in the face of heavy German machine gun and artillery fire, and an attempt to use uh, boats to cross just to the south also failed. These were actually boats that you, uh, you had to put together yourself. And they obviously hadn't practiced because they couldn't put them together. So they had to go up and join in the attack across the, the lock. Lightweight bridges were eventually thrown across the lock under a great deal of artillery fire and machine gun fire from machine gun fire from the lock buildings. But with those bridges thrown across the lock, the, the buildings were stormed two Victoria Crosses earned, Lieutenant Colonel Johnson of the 2nd Sussex and Major Findlay of the 409th Field Company Royal Engineers. They were then able to push on to their objectives against much reduced resistance. And that is the story pretty much of the whole line. Once the first line of German defences was breached, it became pretty clear that there wasn't much behind it. The whole operation, and when you compare this Uh, with the casualties on the first day of the Somme, for example, which, as I said, is a battle of about the same size, the whole operation had been achieved with just over 1,200 fatalities.
0: So, in your book, you examine the operational and tactical levels of the battle, battle, analysing the plans, reality, and the proficiency of the commanders involved. Can you share some of your insights or discoveries that you've made during your...
1: Of course. Um, First thing I want to say is proficiency of the units of the formation was... Was variable. For the most part, to be fair, the uh, 1918 infantry tactics were understood and well executed, as I say, for the most part. Plans were altered and modified right up to and sometimes beyond zero. The men on the spot were allowed, shall we say, or even trusted to make decisions without recourse to higher command. So we get a sort of pragmatic leadership coming through where plans are extended altered or curtailed even, as the situation required. Now, on the 4th of November, having having said that this attack was a a great success, uh, this, this statistic maybe challenges it. Only five of the 13 divisions reached or exceeded their objectives. These are the 19th, 24th, New Zealand, 37th and 38th. The 18th and 50th divisions, to be fair, came rather close. But The failures of the other seven were, in the end, irrelevant. The fact that the forward defences had been breached was all that mattered in the end. German defenders withdrew during the night, allowing all those attacking units who didn't quite make their objectives to just move on to them unopposed the following morning. Now, did it all go to plan? No, obviously not. But did it matter? Well, the answer is also no. Um, It was an audacious plan, and enough of it went right to ensure... The final success. Other aspects of this, the artillery barrage, for example, was was, uh, was very sophisticated. We're no longer looking at simple linear entities here. Um, for example, the skirting of Le Noir was done by a twin artillery barrage working its way around the south and the north of the town, and they met up with perfect timing at a, a predetermined point to the east of the time, town, and they were Also, in other places, they were firing creeping barrages at right angles to the general direction of advance. As I mentioned, at Catillon, they attacked from the south, a little further to north, at the village of preux au bois The attack went in from the north, with creeping barrages going in those directions. Um, The only negative with the artillery was uh, where it was opposite the canal. The initial barrage fell about 30 or so yards beyond the waterway. This was to avoid the chance of breaching the banks and flooding the area that the infantry were about to move into. Now, this meant that the machine gun emplacements and some forward artillery positions were unmolested and were able to cause some real damage to the attacking units, as I mentioned, against 32nd Division and, to a certain extent, against those trying to get across at lock number one. Now, those set books, the setbacks would have jeopardised an attack probably in 1916 or 17, but these setbacks were were no longer unsurmountable. The uh, the middle managers, if I can call them that, the company battalion and brigade commanding officers, they were all capable of making decisions on the spot to circumvent and overcome tricky situations. Sometimes they realised that the advance didn't need to be continued. The job was done and they therefore saved unnecessary exertions and unnecessary and excessive losses to the infantry. And I've just got to mention quickly here the ingenuity of the engineers, they were given quite a short time to invent and then build bridging solutions for keeping the infantry dry as they crossed the canal. They didn't have um, anything, shall we say, in stock or already made. They were all, as I say, invented and then built and tested in in the weeks leading up to the battle.
0: So the Battle of the Sombra involves all these various elements of warfare, you know, infantry, artillery, engineering. How did all these elements actually work and function together? Uh, And you've touched on the role of the engineers. Is there anything else to add about their their role in this battle?
1: Mm, Indeed. If we just mention the infantry and artillery again briefly, um, they were working, of course, the infantry, with a reliable creeping barrage. Um, Tactics there were, were well developed, well executed, and crucially, it was a system that the the men were used to and they trusted it it was sort of bite and hold on a on a large scale with the the hold part of that largely unnecessary no german counterattacks were even attempted on that day um storming a machine gun position was no longer regarded as special if you look in war diaries um in the early part of the war they'll make a big deal out of it hardly mentioned by this stage, suppressing fire from Lewis guns and rifle grenades, flanking manoeuvres were all regarded pretty much as routine. Um, If we get to the engineers now, they had an absolutely vital role. I have actually heard this battle described as an engineering operation accomplished with infantry support. Before the battle, they cleared paths through hedgerows, bridged rivers and streams behind the lines to facilitate troop movements. They came up with the ideas and the hardware to build bridges crossing the canal and actually of course went forward with the infantry to put them in place if i could criticize them it's perhaps for not sharing material across divisions first division down by lock number one and just just north of that were supplied with ready-built pontoon bridges using floats made from petrol tins barrels captured german floats and this meant a rapid deployment they could push this straight across the canal um with a an unlucky, or lucky show, whichever, engineer sitting on the far end, who when he reached the far uh, bank would then secure the end of the pontoon bridge. And that was it. You were over. You had a bridge. 32nd Division, where the attack failed, they were unfortunately left with some heavy, cumbersome cork floats that nobody else wanted. And they were so heavy that they had to be carried down to the canal in small sections. Their bridges had to be constructed from their component parts once the canal had been reached and therefore under enemy fire two victoria crosses were awarded to engineers actually trying to make this work this was the major factor in the failure of 32nd division's first attempt at a crossing and it cost them 112 men killed in the process so as i say engineers absolutely vital uh, particularly when it comes to the canal crossings
0: your analysis places the battle in wider context and reaches new conclusions about its impact. Can you provide li- listeners with a glimpse into the broader implications and long-term effects of the battle?
1: I think I've mentioned most of this before, but yes, um, the immediate impact was that the, the Germans had no more defensive lines to fall back to. The uh, subsequent actions were more or less a pursuit by the time that evening came along, the German OHL had decided that the game was up, and it was it was merely a matter of time—and not much time—until they would have to accept an armistice. And if that meant accepting an unconditional surrender, then then so be it. Gruner, as I said, mentioned earlier when he spoke to Parliament, he was he was almost almost panicking. He was saying the army hasn't even got a week left—not even seven days. We cannot continue. You must bring uh, a halt to the fighting now. It I'm not sure I'm not sure about long term uh, effects because of course within the week the whole thing was over. Um but what it did do in a sort of a, a negative sort of way if you like as against this long term idea it stopped the war going on into 1919 which quite a lot of people were thinking was bound to happen. Um one week after this the armistice was signed and the whole thing was done. That that I think is the Sambres' um Biggest legacy It's the speed in which it brought the Great War to a finish.
0: Now, for those who are interested in, for for those who are interested in learning more about your research and reading your book, Decisive Victories, where can they find it? And would you recommend any other publication? Of this um, on uh, largely on uh, battle.
1: Indeed, well, yeah, one of the reasons for studying the battle was the scarcity of the literature dealing with it. Um, the official history does devote twenty nine pages to it. But it's it's almost totally devoid of analysis, and Edmunds even admitted that he relied heavily on another publication, the story of the Fourth Army in the battles of the Hundred Days, written by Sir Archibald Montgomery, when he was compiling his official history. That particular book gives you eighteen pages on the Battle of the Somme, but it is very very good if you want to follow the Fourth Army through the whole of the summer and autumn. That is an excellent publication in um, Amiens to the Armistice, which is written by J.P. Harrison and Neil Barr. We get six pages on the Sombra, but again, it's, it's, a, it's a great overview of the, the summer. Peter Hart in 1918, a very British victory, he devotes three and a half pages to the events, mainly at lock number one. And Neil Barr in his chapter in uh, Changing War gives us 17 pages, concentrating mainly on 4th Army, but rightly emphasising the role of the engineers After that, I'm afraid, you struggle to find more than passing references to the battle. If you really want to delve into it, of course, there are over 300 unit and formation war diaries in the National Archive, but there is, so far, only one definitive single-volume work devoted entirely to this battle, and and that's mine.
0: Which would make an excellent present for Christmas. (laughs) Derek, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.